the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Coast and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This podcast is brought to you by Herenia Capital Advisors, a registered financial services provider, FSP number 47080. Herenia Capital Advisors is setting the new standard for stockbroking services. Herenia is by traders, for traders. Visit herenia.co.za to find out more. Welcome to episode 90 of Magic Markets. The two people joining me are currently finishing a swig of their coffee and then loudly putting their mugs down. I think we'll leave that in the final edit just to rat you both out. Jeez, this is why I have to kick off the shows because you two are still just getting your final drinks in. Anyway, welcome to Magic Markets. It's good to have you here. It's good to have uh, Mo here as my co-host and Pietri Riedlin has here as guest. Are you guys finished with your coffee now? Yeah, you know, you know it wasn't me because at least I was muted when I was taking my last swig of my coffee. But Ghost, always a pleasure doing this. And always a pleasure having Pietri from Herenia on the show. You know, we, we've got Pietri's bird that's attacking him on screen. It's such a pity sometimes that our subscribers can't see the video here. This is absolutely beautiful. Pietri, welcome to Magic Markets. Thank you. Um, and I'm being preened, okay? I'm being cleaned. It's a service that's being offered here. I'm not being attacked. Sorry, if they make a bit of noise today, um, it's I'm at home, obviously, and they're not, they sort of are free to roam the house. Um, so if they do from time to time make some creaky noises, please forgive me. They're friendly, I promise. You need a cat, Pietri. That'll bring some discipline into your home. <laughs> oh, no. It's normally my cat who sits watching the podcast. So if it was watching uh, this video, the poor thing would probably be losing its mind. Anyway, on to stocks um, and not coffee and birds and all these other things. So... Petri, you shared with us some of the constituents of the, the portfolios that you basically manage, I suppose, within the Herenia stable. And I think it'll be quite cool for us to chat through maybe some of the stocks that are sitting in there. But I think before we get into that, maybe just two minutes on, you know, what is the story with these portfolios? Who are you managing it on behalf of? There's a local one and an international one, as we understand it. I think it's worth just understanding how they fit into the Herenia ecosystem. Okay, so... Um Together with the rest of the investment committee, we manage these portfolios on behalf of sort of, you know, everyday clients. So anybody is, anybody who's, you know, wanting to invest in one of our portfolios can. The way that we've structured them, there's two separate sort of structuring methods that we've used. The local one is structured as an equity index basket. So that works very similar to sort of a closed end hedge fund where, you know, you have to be a direct Arrhenia client mandated directly with us. So you can't access it through a platform. And then through, you know, we use uh, Perisic Asset Management Services to sort of pull those together into what's called an, ind- an equity index basket and... Uh, you know, clients invest in that and uh, we manage the, the portfolio from there. The, and the offshore portfolios are managed, well, we, we put those portfolios with interactive brokers. They are segregated accounts. So these accounts are held sort of completely individually. We have a model portfolio 
a client opens an account with us, we in turn open the account with Interactive Brokers on their behalf. You know, they fund their offshore account uh, with US dollars or euros or whatever it might be. We prefer dollars. And from there, we link it to our model. And we, you know, whenever we make changes to the model, it makes changes to all the underlying portfolios. It's an easy, nice way of, of managing it. And we know that the funds are, you know, offshore out of South Africa. So often people have to get, you know, tax clearance to access their foreign investment allowance in order to fund the portfolios. But... We have a Jordan, uh, aka a tax consultant, who can do that for us. So it makes uh, it makes life quite easy in that respect. And yeah, then we we manage the portfolios. We do also have a third portfolio, which is called the Active Trading Portfolio. But be warned, it is a roller coaster because it is geared derivatives trading. So it is not for everyone. So Pietri, just to maybe pick up, uh, just maybe pick up this. So the first two portfolios that you're describing, those are long only portfolios. One is SA domestic. One is international long only. And then the third roller coaster portfolio, that's for your clients with high kind of risk appetite. It's geared. Is that a long short portfolio? Is that a everything can go kind of unconstrained portfolio? That's kind of unconstrained trading portfolio, right? So you can be long short in there at times. You could be geared long, geared short. Depends on really, you know, market conditions and, and opportunity. So that's very much a sort of opportunistic uh, portfolio. The other two being both long-term, you know, locals or long-term South Africa portfolio and the long-term international portfolio or offshore portfolio, those are cash only, no gearing. Currently, we are sitting in both portfolios with a healthy cash position of around 25% cash in each portfolio. And we don't make use of any derivatives or anything there. That is long-term investment. So that's a lot more conservative. Look, I mean, it is still an equity portfolio. So compared to like fixed income and, you know, those types of things, it's still classed as higher risk, but it is for the more conservative investor, if you will. So it's higher risk than, you know, your house, but it is lower risk than trading derivatives, right? Depends where your house is. I mean, true. Durban seems to be relatively high risk these days, depending on the weather. So... PHG, maybe I can jump in and, and, and start with the local portfolio because there's a couple of really interesting positions in there. So your top two are Fossil Fuels R Us, and uh, that's obviously been a, a really, really good place to play. Tungela and Sassol. Have you been trimming those positions? Have you just been letting those babies run? What have you been doing? No, so we've just sort of let them let them run, hey? I mean, obviously, whenever new money comes into the portfolio, we have to add two positions. So our average prices continuously change. But we've been holding Tungela, current average price around 80 rand, 61 cents. Currently makes up around 11.4% of our portfolio. So that's a massive winner. We've been holding that for a while. And also looking forward to a solid 60 rand per share dividend coming in. That's going to be fantastic. Almost three times the price it traded at after the unbundling. Eh? It got down to, I think, 21 bucks after Angler gave it away. Uh, now you get a 60 rand dividend. It's insane. It's crazy. And you know what? When this thing unbundled, people asked me about it. And I thought, ah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know. And then obviously the world changes a little bit. And you know, at some point you have, to, you have to buy the things that are going up, if that makes sense. So uh, I was lucky enough to get it at sort of, you know, 80s around there is kind of currently the average price. We've been buying it for a bit. So every time you buy that, it raises the average price a little bit. But yeah, it's been a it's been a proper winner, hey? Petri, I mean that's a phenomenal winner. But but Cecil, right? Let's let's maybe touch on Cecil. I'll tell you why, right? Is recently Cecil? I'm still in South Africa as we're recording this. You know, by the time we'll be publishing this, I'll, I'll probably be somewhere in the air. But news flow on Cecil recently, specifically around gas price increases, piped gas price increases, 
has been, I would say, negative from a consumer outlook perspective, maybe great from a Sassel shareholder perspective. Maybe, you know, your, your view on Sassel specifically on the piped gas, because that's something contentious that's likely going to be put through to competition authorities and the courts. How are you contextualizing that risk, given your large exposure to Sassel? Well, currently, it's about 11, or just over 11% of the portfolio. So similar in position size to Tengela, a little, little bit smaller. It was actually a little bit bigger than Tengela until a few days ago. <laughs> but, you know, Tengela trading at 322 as we speak, so that's doing really well. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see how, how it goes. I mean, we have to keep our, our perspective, which is really long term, right? I mean, in the, in the shorter term, yes, uh, there might be some headwinds for, for Sasol. But, you know, if you think about, well, at least if I think about what the world is going to look like in five years from now, Sassel's still going to be making a lot of money, right? I think Sassel can probably get up as high as, as potentially even up to 500 Rand uh, per share. It was there not so long ago. I mean, we're looking at sort of mid-2019 prices and we're trading, you know, upwards of 450 Rand a share. So over the recent few months, we've come down from, I think we peaked at around 437 or something like that. And it's obviously, you know, been under some pressure over the last two or so months uh, largely on the back of oil prices cooling off a little bit. But, you know, in general, I don't see the energy, I don't see much changing in the energy market within the next six to 12 months. I think we remain in this constrained uh, position. And yes, even though consumers might start feeling the heat and might, you know, there might be some demand destruction. I, w- I can't remember who I was, I was talking to about this, but the way that I see it is that, you know, new energy mix or new energy forms come to market all the time in the form of green energy, nuclear, all the rest of that stuff is probably going to become a bit more popular in coming times. However, historically, we've seen that when a new form of energy hits the market, it does not replace the old form of energy. It just adds to the energy mix, right? So the death of fossil fuels, I think, takes, you know, let's assume it happens in the next 20 years. I don't think it happens at a point where coal is really cheap 20 years from now, right? I think fossil fuels die a really, truly expensive death to the point where it is just too expensive compared to alternative, cheaper, greener energies. And in this you know, scenario, things like coal and oil and gas are going to keep going up. And yeah, potentially the consumer might struggle to afford it, which will force them into greener energies, which at the moment is very expensive compared to you know, the dirty sort of uh, you know, fossil fuel based energies. But as time goes by and fossil fuel energies become more expensive, then the cleaner, greener energies become the cheaper alternative. And that's what drives people into green energy. So I do think that the price of energy is probably going to continue to go up for some time. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to go up a hundredfold. I just think that there's a very strong trend in place and there's no real reason in the short term for that trend to change. Even though in the short term, there might be some, you know, micro type of challenges that individual companies might face, the broader macro picture, I think, is still supportive of higher energy prices. And therefore, you know, I'm happy to let Sasol and Tungela and Uranium and all these sort of energy plays just let them ride. So Pietri, I noticed there's no high prop in your portfolio, which worries me. But what you did have, which is cool, is transaction capital. So I approve of that. But there was something else I spotted further down, which I think is more interesting to talk about, and that is Breit. I'm curious when you bought that, and was it on the basis of the performance in Premier? or a recovery play in Virgin Active, or a little bit of both? So more of a a recovery play in Virgin Active, to tell you the truth. This position is also one that we've been carrying for some time now, probably around, 
a year and a half, two years or so. So it's more the recovery play post-COVID, the world coming back. So we've been holding it since before Iceland Foods was sold off. Although, you know, the basic premise for our entry into this stock is that, you know, there are some private equity investors that got involved in the stock at a slightly higher price than what it is now. And, you know, as history dictates, the private equity guys, particularly on the scale, uh, you know, on very large scales where they buy 15 and, and, and upwards percentages of businesses, tend to not uh, <laughs> tend to not take bets they can lose, right? So we're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants in that, in that sense. And also, you know, the basic premise is that earnings and the gym business was just absolutely crushed during COVID. And at the end of the day, when people, you know, have the ability to sort of go out and see real people's faces, I mean, just thinking about how good it felt for me to see people smiling again after uh, having to wear masks for so long. You know, the gym business is one of those things that we we felt would recover relatively strongly. And therefore, when, you know, the stock was really depressed, we took the opportunity to get involved. Yeah, Piotr, I've been, I mean, an iron about Breit. I uh, must be honest, I've been going back to gym. It's much better without a mask. It's full. So I do think Virgin Active is probably on its way back up. They've now basically brought Kauai into the group. They're in the process of doing that. New CEO in place. And to your point, this Virgin Active story has received capital support from all the big guns involved there. So it'll be an interesting one to see. I do think that the way they value it is much too high. So looking at the sort of discount to the director's valuations, I mean, I don't believe the director's valuations on any level, the multiples they put on something like a Virgin Active. But on the whole, the business is good and Premier has been performing really well at a time when Tiger Brands has been doing pretty badly. So I've owned an art about Brayton. and it was interesting for me to see it in the portfolio. I think it's a, it's a cool little play. Well, thank you, I guess. Time will tell, Ghosty. That's the only way we'll, <laughs> we'll know whether or not it was the right call, right? We have to give it a year or two and see what happens. Yeah, thanks. I mean, guys, I, w- I want to almost segue from the local portfolio into some of the themes we've spoken about with you, Pietri, a while ago, uh, as well as some of the stuff that we're seeing in your international portfolio. So I'm going to, first of all, in your local portfolio, I want to touch on something. I noticed that you've got a nice holding of a new gold in there. And the reason I have to raise this is because, you know, I generally have this banter with Ghost about my tinfoil hat gold position. But, you know, just picking up on a couple of things here. There's, there's new gold in there. There's also a an inflation ETF. And I'm talking still the local portfolio. And then if I look through to the international portfolio, I see a couple of sim- similar themes. So I see the inflation kind of ETFs come through again. We can discuss maybe an update on your view on inflation. I'm also encouraged to see a couple of stocks that we liked in Magic Markets Premium show up in your portfolio here as well. So again, maybe some end of the world stuff like I know there's Lockheed Martin in there, for example, from a defense perspective, some gold in there as well, but maybe at a very high level, Pietri. Let's start off with inflation and you know maybe unpack your view around that. How has that evolved and how do you feed some of these themes into your international portfolio? Well, okay, the, the inflation thesis is really just based in the fact that money printer go brrr, right? Um, the belief that I guess politicians are trying to push is that um, the massive, massive, massive amount of quantitative easing, essentially just good old-fashioned money printing that took place during COVID, you know, in no way infects inflation. That is obviously not true, at least not from my understanding of how economics works and the books that I've read in my life. You know, the more money supply there is, the less valuable money is. So inflation, right? So that's basically was the premise for taking some of these inflation-linked bond ETFs and so on. 
So we've taken positions both locally and in the offshore portfolio in sort of inflation trackers or inflation expectation ETFs or inflation expectation bond ETFs, you put it that way, as well as locally we have, it's one of the bigger positions we have, uh, F&B government inflation linked bond ETF, right? So this is basically just on the, on the premise that, you know, we've created a huge amount of money and there really truly is only one result for how that plays out, and that is increased inflation. We're starting to see that play out sort of in the macroeconomic scene now, where inflation readings in the US, even though most recently has cooled a bit, is still running at like 8.1%, right? Which is massive compared to what it has been historically in the US particularly. So on a global scale, we see inflation driving up. So there's a number of inflation drivers as well. I mean, we are big energy bulls, and we're also starting to understand or starting to sort of view that there is potentially a bit of a food shortage situation looming. I mean, I know this is something that has been talked about quite a bit, particularly with the whole Russian invasion of Ukraine and that kind of thing. But there's something bigger at play, I think. We see governments around the world making moves to curb, you know, greenhouse gases and all that kind of stuff obviously you know the green narrative and you know we have to be environmentally friendly and that kind of stuff and then we have governments we've seen canada ireland and the netherlands all basically move to um, limit the emissions that you know beef farmers or cow farmers uh, are allowed to make and that means that up to 70 percent of the meat production in a place like the netherlands might be at risk of you know being off the market so what happens in a situation like that? Food prices go up. Food prices are higher. Energy prices higher. Again, these are massive inflation drivers. So even though, yes, we are seeing the Fed, you know, reacting to inflation and central banks around the world doing the same, putting up interest rates, being a bit less accommodating in their monetary sort of policy, the general view, at least, that we have for the moment and, you know, subject to change, is that there are more drivers than just the fact that the money printer went for a bit too long and printed a bit too much money. We also have this secondary force where we have, you know, a very strong push for a green transition away from fossil fuels, away from so much meat uh, uh, consumption. And this type of stuff is going to continue to push up the prices of everyday goods, right? Yes, the Russia situation also influences this. We know they're a big uh, manufacturer and exporter of fertilizer, and that, of course, pushes up the price of wheat, which, again, is an input into other food stocks and, you know, also uh, into some energy, you know, plays as well, because you can start looking at biodiesel and that kind of stuff. So there's just a lot of forces from a lot of different angles at this stage that are all kind of pushing. The way that I see it is that inflation is not going to just disappear overnight because the Fed's put up the interest rate a few times and come December they can start cutting interest rates because, while wow, we've now contained inflation. Inflation is going to be here unless we see a real reckoning in asset prices. And this makes me sound very bearish because I guess that I am. And it's hard to be bearish in the face of a market that's bounced almost 25% from the lows. But overall, I don't think that the global economy is, a, is in a good footing, right? I think that we are heading into a space where shortage is, is going to be the norm. And in a space like that, you know, inflation is going to keep going. You know, I, I think there's bearishness, but there's also opportunity. And I mean, just looking at your portfolio, I think the most interesting thing for me is, is, is you mentioned the, the methane emissions from cows. And if I look at your portfolio, there's, there's something in here called Moo, which is an ETF, which is effectively giving you exposure to, to cattle prices, right? And then you've got stuff in there like wheat. 
So there are so many ways to play even a bearish thesis in terms of much more nuanced exposure than maybe just buying an inflation ETF, which again, I see in your portfolio, but I see stuff in here like Moo, you know, I see stuff in here like wheat. Uh, we also see things, for example, you know, view we've discussed with you on a previous show, like uranium, where if you have an energy thesis, again, those have bounced nicely off the lows uh, where they were around the time we, we last spoke to you. So, you know, again, well done on, on that. But, you know, I, I think what I want to contextualize for listeners, for subscribers as well, is the important point here for me is that you can look at the world, you can have a macro view, and then you can execute that macro view in a very nuanced manner, just given the proliferation of ETFs, for example, that you see globally. So it's not even just about specific stocks that you want to throw in the portfolio. Even on a macro level, you have the ability to execute on some of these views, whether you're bullish or you're bearish actually doesn't matter. It's just about applying your mind saying, okay, this is my view on the world. What is the best way for me to try and execute that to derive returns in a good risk adjusted manner? Well, yeah. And I think there are a huge amount of options. And this is part of the reason we, we prefer you know, the offshore portfolio. I mean, the local portfolio has performed really well this year so far, but the offshore portfolio has done a lot better. Look, over the last quarter, I think we're underperforming a little bit by around 4% compared to our benchmark. During the second quarter, we were kind of in line with the benchmark. First quarter, we absolutely killed it. We killed the benchmark by like 22% or something like that. The market was down, we were up, right? So the offshore portfolio is really doing pretty well because you have an enormous amount of options to express whatever view that you might have, right? You know, for example, we're, I'm, I'm, we're not entirely... How do I say this? I mean, we're very much fossil fuels, fossil fuels. You know, green energy transition has kind of caused a lot of trouble and that's created a lot of opportunity. And thank you very much for pushing the oil price up, right? That sounds very negative. But if you look at a company like Shell, for example, which is something that we hold in the offshore uh, portfolio, did you know that Shell has the largest network of electric charging stations in Europe, right? Shell is currently pushing to, a, a, well, transitioning their business from essentially oil refining and manufacturing of petrol into generating electricity to sell onto the grid. So they are themselves doing a green transition, right? So we are trying to back that idea. And I think that if you look at something like uranium as well, uh, it's a matter of time before people admit that, okay, well, you know, uranium is actually green energy. And, you know, some governments are still turning off reactors. Other governments are commissioning to build new ones. So as time goes by, that transition takes place and we're just trying to be sort of just following the, following the money, if that makes sense, following the corp. Like what is the world essentially going to do? And right now, yes, energy and scarcity and these things are the themes, but it won't forever be the case. And we'll have to at some point, you know, take note of the changing you know, tides as such and then, you know, adjust our rudders and, and go in a different direction. I have a question for Mo, which he's not expecting. No, after we've talked about PHE's portfolio for so long, what is the last thing you've bought? I'm really curious. We don't actually talk enough about that. What have you bought recently? You've been very mum on Twitter. It's, uh, it's all a state secret. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm mum on Twitter because, you know, I obviously, uh, I've been down in South Africa. Don't we have Twitter here? PHE, apparently we don't have Twitter in South Africa. We, we use real birds to tweet in, uh, in Germany. That's why I've got two of them. <laughs> no, so, so... I'm, I'm, I'm off the Wi-Fi because, uh, you know, I, I don't like South African telecom. So I haven't been buying MTN, which I know you've been buying, Go. So well done on that. Uh, globally, the, I think the last thing I bought was actually Simon Property Group. You know, I was waiting for a nice entry point. We had a pullback. 
on that. Uh, and I was looking to add to the, the, the core long portfolio. I like the dividend underpin. So I went and I bought Simon Property Group. Uh, and then a couple of things on the watch list. So there's actually a whole bunch of stuff which we have spoken about in Magic Markets Premium. I just haven't executed because, again, I like to execute when I'm sitting in my U.S. time zone. You know, it's a lot more, I think, cognitively connected for me. I have a lot of respect for guys like Pietri who trade U.S. markets in the South African time zone. I tried doing the inverse. It was actually very difficult. When I was sitting in kind of a U.S. time zone trying to trade South Africa, that's very difficult. So Short short answer to your question, Simon Property Group and a couple of things on the watch list, which I may add into, but still sitting on a fairly large cash position and, and maybe ties into a, I'm going to bounce a question onto Pietri because I want to hear his view on this, right? What I'm very torn with is I've been quite conservative. We've had this bounce in the market. And now my question is, and I'm sitting on a cash balance. Do I deploy that into this market? Are we going into a world that kind of resumes? Yes, we have some rate hikes and that kind of, we move into a normal kind of cycle of Rates will rise, then rates will fall. Or are we in a version of reality where guys like Michael Burry, who've been selling everything, say that, yes, in super bear markets, you get these bounces of 20% off their lows, which is kind of where we're sitting at on the S&P right now. Do we see this reverse? And are we in a game of significant pressure for risk assets in general? You know, Pietri, what's your view on that? Because I haven't landed on that yet. I'm still quite torn. And that's the reason why I haven't been deploying my cash as aggressively as I theoretically could have. So this is this is the million dollar question, right? I mean, like I mentioned a little earlier, we are sitting with around 25% cash in both local and offshore portfolios. And that question came up actually earlier this week in the investment committee meeting. It's like, okay, well, the thesis, the view, you know, is still relatively bearish that we don't see where, you know, we're going to have growth constraints. You know, the world isn't necessarily looking very healthy we're not really quite yet comfortable to deploy this cash and start buying stuff. And there's nothing really that looks all that appealing out there other than the stuff that we already have, if that makes sense. But the market is rallying. And if you look at like technical analysis and you look at the trend line on the S&P 500, you've made a new high, you've broken the downtrend. You've got all these signals that, you know, it's time to buy, time to buy. Um, however, there are just currently too many conflicting signals for us to be able to make a confident sort of call that yes now is the time to deploy the spare capital so we're just hanging on to it right until we find a, a way or a, or, or a time or a much clearer signal where there aren't you know a thousand things disagreeing with each other if you look at the way stock prices have recovered over the last couple of weeks it's been really good uh, however you know you still have record high gas prices in germany germany has enough gas to last 50 days by the time this publishes, that's less another seven, right? Uh, so how, you know, how does that situation turn out? What happens if they run out of energy? What happens if they run out of gas in the middle of winter or at the beginning of winter? These things are huge, huge risks that people are not really, well, I don't know, that I think that, you know, over the last two weeks, the market's really, really hard. Um, are we really taking into account all the, the headline risks? So yeah, on the one side, it's very tempting to get in and everyone's going, well, if you're not long, you're wrong. At the same time, it's fine. I'd be wrong for a little while. Let me get a clearer view or a clearer opportunity to deploy the capital. Um, for now, I'm patiently sitting around. I think there's another leg down coming. I might be wrong. Uh, we have uh, different views on our investment committee as well. Uh, you know, two are bullish, two are bearish. So it's not necessarily, you know, there's no clear consensus as to exactly what happens next. So we be patient and we wait for a better opportunity and a clearer picture. 
you know, we've had a strong market because Alibaba's only lost 13% in the last month, which is very good. So, um, you know, as I desperately wait for an opportunity to sell my Alibaba's, which doesn't appear to ever come, one I am looking to sell is to finish getting out of Karoo with 507,000 O's. They actually had a much better quarter. We did them in Magic Markets Premium on their previous quarterly result, which was really poor. And I've lost a lot of faith in the long-term story there, but just been waiting to get out because the thing is so illiquid. Um, <laughs> but it's it's really nicely now, so I think I might get the rest of my money out. So sometimes these bear market rallies are a good opportunity to let your rubbish that really didn't work out get out of it 20% better off than you thought you were. <laughs> that's uh, that's often what these things are for. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, selling to strength, buying to weakness, it's hard to buy when everyone else is is scared. I mean, there's a couple of things that we watch as well, right? I mean, like if you look at sentiment, I think investor sentiment is kind of ticking around zero for a while now. It's been uh, at least the the Morgan Stanley one that they that they measure across a bunch of, um, it's different to the, you know, fear and panic gauge. It's a different sort of way of measuring it. But uh, investor sentiment is still hovering around zero, right? It's about as negative as it gets. But if you look at retail fund flows, retail investors are not selling. So even though if you throw a you know stone into a bush, five people will jump out and say, we think the future is going to be worse than it is today. No one's willing to sell their stocks on the back of that, right? So at what point do we see that sentiment turn to action and we have that last flush out? And that's going to be our opportunity to then buy, right? So, you know, there's there's lots of different... So this is why I say you've got different different signals because one says things and she says, well, it's as negative as it's going to get if you're going to be a contrarian buyer. And the other side says, well, nobody's sold anything. So if they haven't really panicked yet. So yes, they're negative, but they're not scared. And if they start panicking, at that point, we might then get the opportunities to buy because they're going to, you know, misprice assets on the way down as they as they just sell indiscriminately. Yeah, Pietri, I think that's, that's why it's so important for our listeners, our subscribers, to actually just keep their finger on the pulse, why we have these discussions. I mean, at the end of the day, as much as I ask you the question and Ghost asks me the question and we ask Ghost the question, the fact is we're all figuring this out as we go along. So I'm, I'm glad to see that I'm actually in good company here trying to contextualize not just the macro risks, but then distilling that down to a stock-specific or an investment-specific trade idea or an investment idea. Uh, let's see how this evolves. I think we are in a very fluid period of time globally. Uh, and, you know, I, we don't have time for it right now. I'd love to maybe pick your brain at a future show on, you know, just crypto. For example, you've discussed money printer go brr and, you know, all of these kind of things. Uh, so, I mean, crypto, you, you, would, you would fit in perfectly at like a crypto conference. But let's maybe save that for a future podcast. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's all we have time for this week. You know, Ghost, I think it's been fantastic chatting to Pietri, picking his brain on some of these things, getting an update and a recap on some of the ideas that we have discussed on previous shows with Pietri as well. And to our listeners, let us know what you think. You know, hit us up on social media. It's at Finance Ghost, at Mohammed Nala, and at Herenia Capital or at Trader Pietri. You know, hit us all up on social media. Let us know your thoughts. And guys, we hope you've enjoyed this. Ghost, uh, I think that's where we leave it for this week. Yeah, shame. I mean, if you're looking for Mo on Twitter, just wait for him to get back to the US where they have signal, and then I'm sure he'll, I'm sure he'll reappear on social. He'll also start trading again because down here in the sticks, Pietri, we have to send you know your birds with tweets and pigeons with trade suggestions. Uh, it makes it quite tough to do intraday. In the US, they had the open outcry pits, and in, in in South Africa, we have the shout from the pothole. Ghost is being friendly because at least he's got some electricity while we're having this chat. <laughs> All right, chaps. Thanks. It's been fun. To our listeners, thank you. We will uh, be back next week. Ciao. Thanks. Ciao. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.